Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The big thing we had an inkling of, but we never really realized, was how many people in a rich country like Australia don't have glasses and need glasses. That was entrepreneur Bruce Jeffries, and this is episode 191 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. Sorry the podcast is a few hours late today. This is episode 191 of the show with entrepreneur, Australian entrepreneur, Bruce Jeffries. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you can follow about the stuff that Bruce does. You quickly Google his number. I've been looking for his Twitter handle. I can't quite find it, but I'll, I'll just tell you more about him in a moment. Uh, big thanks, firstly, to uh, the new listeners. Thank you so much if you're new here. Welcome to the show. I'm Osher. I'm a, a TV and a radio kind of guy, and I... Uh, Talk to people every week, people who have figured out a way to get paid to do something they absolutely love to do, and generally asking them about how they manage to do it through the difficult stuff. And whether you get a lesson out of how they manage to find their success or get a lesson out of how they manage to deal with the dark days, either way, I'd like to think that these conversations are... Uh, are worth having and it's important to understand that life isn't an instagram highlight reel of greatest hits moments and perfect selfie angles that yeah sometimes stuff is hard <laughs> that's okay a big thank you to everybody who supports the show if you want you can support the show it doesn't cost much five bucks a month 
will get you uh, a beautiful, warm feeling of joy and empathy in your stomach going, oh, I'm a good person. I helped out. Um, but it will also get you exclusive episodes because if you support the show for as little as five bucks a month at patreon.com slash osher, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R, you uh, can help me pay for uh, the rest of the team that make the show, Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Haley Van Spania, my uh, production coordinator. Uh, they help me make the show and I have to pay them and... Uh, I don't take any money from this at the point, this point. Um, and that money helps them so we can make the show together. And uh, there are exclusive episodes about once a month that you get that no one else gets. And this episode this week, this month, is Ruben Meerman, who is a scientist who's been on the show before. And since he was last on the show, we had uh, – he's, he's published a book, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Um, Speaking of science, a big thank you to everybody that came and said hello at the Neil deGrasse Tyson gig in Brisbane last night. A bit of a bit of a dream gig that one. I hosted Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, talk in Brisbane at the South Bank Piazza. It's yeah, pretty intense going head to head with one of the greatest thinking minds of our generation in front of a couple of thousand people. He, thankfully, though, is very kind and let my sometimes naff questions not throw him at all. Uh, but he is an inspirational guy, very inspirational guy. I would recommend his podcast, Star Talk, very highly. But also, if you do get a chance to, uh, if you haven't seen him already on his tour, I think there might be some tickets in Sydney left. I'm not quite so sure. But try and, uh, try and find a way to get to the show. He's a really interesting cat. I am speaking to you right now. I'm sorry this is late. I, I didn't get a chance to record the, sh- uh, the intro for this show across the weekend, so I'm sorry this is late for this podcast today. I'm speaking to you today from one of the meeting rooms at SANE Australia down in Melbourne. Um, we've, got a, we've got a board meeting today, but it doesn't start for another 10 minutes, so <laughs> I'm recording the intro for you now. But uh, I hope your week was good. I had a, a busy week. This We're in launch week for The Bachelor, which starts on Wednesday night. So we're in full tilt mode. This is this moment where we're still shooting Bachelorette and I'm still doing radio, but then we go into launch mode for The Bachelor, which means lots of promo and lots of interviews and and being places and doing Facebook Lives and things like that. So we're in in full-blown promo mode. So uh, I'm in – and I know this is bad for my health. I'm acknowledging that with all of you right now and it's not ideal and I know how much I go on about – Get good sleep. Come on, you got to sleep. I'm just in coffee and Barocca mode right now. Um, it's not a permanent solution. I promise you, this is not how I will live the rest of my days. But I'm, that's what's going on. <laughs> I'm trying to do the best I can uh, and make sure that I'm doing good work whenever I show up wherever I've been asked to be. Um, but at the moment, that includes a lot of coffee and a lot of Barocca. But it's super good. In the middle of all of that, I have made sure to try and carve out time to be with Audrey, which is also important because um, uh, someone was just texting me this morning to ask me how I'm going and uh, if you're new to the podcast, I lost my mum a couple of weeks ago and I've noticed that I've been keeping myself super busy, super, super, super busy. It might be so that I don't think about what's going on, but I don't know if that means I'm avoiding things or it, if I'm focusing on other stuff because it's um, easy to focus on other stuff then to think about uh, that loss. My friend had asked me, how the, how's the grieving process going? I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. Or is working 18-hour days and getting five hours sleep a night not doing okay? I don't know. But 
it is important to be with those who aren't work and so on Saturday I had a great day with Audrey managed to carve out some time uh, just me and her and um, it was it was great thankfully the in-laws were able to come and take care of Georgia and uh, I whisked Audrey away and we had we had a great day and night together which was really really nice to have that time that was just us um, and I had a good dance we had a boogie there was a, a 40th birthday party we went to and um, I haven't danced in, since my wedding. I haven't had a chance to dance. I haven't had a chance to dance. Whichever part of Australia you come from, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and it was great because there was a time after I stopped drinking where I just didn't dance. And that was really weird because I noticed that when I was out and the music started playing and I was into it, I was too afraid to get on the dance floor. I was like, shit, the only time I ever get on the dance floor is after like four drinks or five drinks. And so I didn't dance for like two years. I was like the town in Footloose. But slowly, slowly I've been found a way to, to dance again. And I, you know, I'm, 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 I do drunk uncle at a wedding dancing at best. That's, that's about what I can do. But to fearlessly move one's body to music uh, in a in a very kind of white person uncoordinated way, uh, it took me a while to get to that point, um, and it was really fun. I forgot. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been Jesus six months. Six months between dances is too far. I'm going to have to sort that out. Um, I'm back, like I said, I'm back in Melbourne. I don't think I'm going to have time to, but if you're in Melbourne, I managed to swing by uh, this place, which is freaking ins- incredible, incredible food uh, down at uh, St Kilda, right by the tram turn around there, a place called Matcha Milk Bar. Um, it's a plant-based place, but that is, you know, kind of beside the point. The food there is just freaking amazing. The thoughtfulness that's gone into the preparation of the food and the tastes that are arranged on the plate are just incredible. The coffee's great. The skull cups are great that they serve them in. Uh, um, but we went there for breakfast the other day and it was just the bomb. And so I'm going to have to figure out a way to get Audrey back down here so we can uh, so we can eat there more often. Uh, I did talk about Bachelor just a second ago. We are launching this week. It's Wednesday night. I'm really proud of this show um i hope that you enjoy it with someone if you have never watched the show before maybe consider going and even if it's just to watch it and you know poke fun out fun at it that's fine but the uh, my idea of making the show is that people come together to watch it so find someone that you can watch it with and uh and just enjoy enjoy the, the spectacle if you can join me on twitter during the first episode that'll be uh super super good there is a Facebook Live with Matty on Tuesday that uh, he and I will be taking your questions. Uh, but it's a really good show. There's hundreds of people work on it. We've been working really hard on it. I, I know you won't be disappointed. It's great. A big thanks to everybody that sent emails through. Send us your email at gmail.com. It's always great to get your messages. Thanks so much for the words of uh, condolence of people who are catching up on episodes as they come through. That's really nice of you. Thank you. And thank you very much for all the photographs, all the podsy pictures. It's a picture of what you're, list- what you're looking at while you listen to this show. So just pick up the phone that you're listening to this on right now. Take a picture with the camera and email it to me. Send us your email at gmail.com. And it's great to see what people are listening to. Uh, I think my favourite one this week was from a lady who sent through a picture of an industrial sewing machine um, with the bobbins and the and everything. And uh, uh, this person was uh, 
stitching up pieces for a, an independent fashion store that she runs. And it was super cool. Um, and listening to podcasts all day. What a great way to pass the time. I love it. So let me tell you about my guest today. I'm excited to talk to you about this guy. Bruce Jeffries is an Australian entrepreneur. He's based at the moment in Sydney, Australia. He co-founded two quite successful and disruptive businesses, GoGet, which is the car sharing company. You've seen them with the great parks in your suburb if you're in Sydney or one of the other capital cities of Australia. And he also... Uh, found a Dresden Optics, which is a glasses company. Um, full disclosure, after he and I had this chat, I did realise that I needed new glasses. And so I went into one of his stores and I bought and paid for it. I didn't get any discounts, nothing like that. Uh, but I now wear his glasses and they're really good. Uh, but I bought them. You know, I didn't, I didn't get paid to say that or anything, but uh, they're really quite good. But it's a really interesting, interesting story for, for two reasons. Uh, if you're thinking of starting your own business or you've got your own business going on, this, here's a story of two, actually three, when he talks about the film, festivals, film festival as well, three stories of how businesses came to be, which were quite disruptive and uh, on the outside had obstacles that were so great that they looked like they probably wouldn't have worked on the outside. But then he just kind of started both and figured it out and then went with it, which I think is the recurring, re the recurring lesson in all of the shows that I do with entrepreneurs is whatever it is that's stopping you from starting the business, the dream gig, just start it and figure it out. Um, and he's done that a few times now and he's done really, really, really quite well with it. So even if you're not starting a business or you just, you know, if, if you're like me and you work within giant corporations within that business, I personally, I'm almost like my own contractor. I'm a, like a, how would I put myself? I'm like a hosting uh, company. And how can I run my business better in a more disruptive way that can scale in a, in a greater way? And it's just, it's just ways to think about, you know, whatever it is that you do to put uh, the food on the table and the roof over your family's head. There are lessons here from Bruce's story that I'm sure will resonate with you. He's a he's an inspirational guy. I've got a feeling that he's going to do something even bigger next, and I've got a feeling he might do it around education. But that's just that's just based on a conversation he and I had after we stopped rolling. But I have keep your eye on Bruce Jeffries because I think big 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 things are going to come from him. Enjoy the show. Have a seat. Now with my table in my kitchen in Bronte, pour a cup of tea and enjoy a nice conversation with Bruce Jeffries. Good morning, Bruce. Morning. How do you do? I'm well. I'm How good. Are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm rolling now. We've had right. we've had a piece of cake. Uh, Audrey made a nice uh, baked a lovely chocolate cake the other day. It was fantastic. And we've just had a piece of cake. It has the coffee. Uh, it's great. It's great. I don't normally have it with soy, but yeah. You know, okay. Well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm coping. You, you've come from the inner west, and so I'm, you know, I'm quite aware <laughs> that your coffee situation over there is pretty intense. We take it very seriously. Yeah, my word. I don't have forearm tattoos, but I'm pretty sure I pulled a pretty good coffee for you. It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> It'll do. Well, thanks for being here, man. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad you could come over, um, and I'm glad that that you got in touch to come and do this because I'm. I'm really interested to speak to people like you, particularly Australian people like you, um, that have, you know, successfully started uh, a couple of businesses and, and probably started a couple that didn't make it, but we'll get to that. Um, because I, you know, when I grew up in Australia, entrepreneurialism wasn't really, it, it was a thing, but we didn't really celebrate it too much. Um, but 
having lived in the, in the States for a long time and seeing the startup culture over there and, and certainly and then living in Venice Beach for a while and just seeing just every everything was just a startup. Um, and, you know, I just got really excited by that and then to see that happening more and more in Australia really is, is exciting. But so you're seeing that now and seeing, you know, so much capital going behind interesting ideas in Australia now is, is really exciting. But you've been at it for quite some time. Um, but we'll get to that. Did you grow up in Sydney? I didn't. Actually, I grew up all over the place. I was born in Perth, grew up in Papua New Guinea, all, um, basically mid-primary school, uh, back to Perth, Hang on. and then spent a lot of time in India, and which is where my, where my mother is from. And, yeah, basically high school in Perth, uh, uni in Perth, and then went and lived in Turkey for a few years. Wow. Yeah, and then basically loved Istanbul and thought, oh, look, where's the most... You know, Turkish city in Australia. I thought that's probably Sydney. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. probably so me and my partner Kath, we moved here. Tell me about Papua New Guinea. Like, what were you even doing there? Well, my my parents, I'm from that generation where it was just pre-independence, and the Australian government went, "Oh shit, we'd really need to like you know put some money into developing the country into you know because it's about to become independent." So there was like a very last-minute attempt to build schools and hospitals and all the infrastructure, uh, which obviously. Um, didn't work too well. So Independent my, from the British? Because there was an Australian protectorate. So, oh, yeah, yeah, after the Second World War, the, the UN gave Australia, uh, Papua New Guinea as a territory to look after. And How did we go? Look. Because um, that track record I, I, with Indigenous <laughs> people here is not ace. <laughs> look, uh, look, terribly, really. Yeah? Yeah, terribly, yeah. Uh, Papua New Guinea, amazingly complex place. It's, it's, you're talking... 400 plus languages, uh, they're still discovering, you know, animals and plants like on a daily basis there. It's, it's completely, it's, it's an amazingly rich, um, rich place and I don't think we were equipped doing to quite get our heads around it. Uh, and I'm just talking perspective as a child growing up there, uh, it was great because uh, it was, you know, you essentially, uh, the, you know, incredible freedom but... Uh, you know, it's really stuck in between, like if you, you know, like it's really stuck in between, um, you know, a, a modern industrial, you know, a modern economy and, and a, a very traditional economy and a lot of people are going back to the traditional economy. So, uh, so yeah, amazing place. Well, I mean, obviously you didn't get hired to go work there. You probably went with your parents. What were they into? Yeah, 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 they were teachers. Oh. Yeah, my, yeah, my dad, my mum, my mum my was a librarian, so she... Uh, started uh, uh, basically opened a library and started a li- like librarian studies uh, and taught that. And my dad was an English teacher, so he um, sort of uh, helped start a technical college uh, in Garoka in the Highlands. And uh, they taught, so he taught he taught English, and my mum taught librarian studies. Was it at all dodgy when you were living there? It wasn't. It wasn't in Garoka, but we lived in Port Moresby for a few years, and um, uh, yeah, we we basically lived. Uh, yeah, behind large um, yeah, security fences, and uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty. Uh, it wasn't a relaxed environment in Port Moresby. But you've got projection bias. You like think everybody's life is like that when you're a kid. Yeah, like you're not like there's definitely there's definitely things you remember as a kid that are yeah. that are a bit strange. You know, like you, uh, that, that you go. This is this is this is a strange way to live. Um, especially after living in Garoka where it's fully free and then mm. coming to Moresby and it's, you know, very compound-based. Um, but, yeah, like, 
it's the thing about childhood memories. You don't know to what degree you overlay them later. Mm. Do you know what I mean to what they were at the time? Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've found that with my with my folks. I don't like. Am I remembering this, or am I remembering a dream I had about it, or yeah. am I remembering something that's been embellished by one of my brothers, yep. and that's become my memory? Yeah. Um, Fully. In in many ways, you know, and I guess yeah, yeah. you know, our smartphones ruining this. That might have been the way we used to remember thing with the um, the hedonic recall, where we only remember the good stuff. Yep. And yet we've now got so much documentation of everything we ever did. Uh, you don't have that anymore. You don't exactly. have that kind of mysterious. God, it kind of felt good. I don't remember what it looked like or anything, but I, you know, that's the only thing that it distills down to is either good yeah, or bad a, feeling. Like, but yeah, you think about it, we've got. Um, yeah, my dad did a lot of Super Eight filming. What? And you think about that. Yeah, that sort of crazy, jerky, weird, speeded sort of film, and it's like, and your memories almost become like that, like a bit super eighty. You know, like, yeah, and you're right. Like with the with the smartphone, like it's it's the harsh reality. Well, I, I, I not as much anymore, but I used to shoot a lot on film, and I, indeed I had a Super 8 camera, and I would shoot a lot on Super 8. And what I liked about it is, particularly because it was silent, um, it did mimic the mem- the memory that I had. You know, I wasn't able to recall complete, super crystal clear pictures. I was like, I kind of got to. You know, like I was saying before, I got a feeling that it was a good thing. There was a lot yeah. of red. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a that, patchiness of your yeah. memory. Yeah, and, and it was a bit patchy, wasn't it? Super yeah. Right. So you, you sort of, it fitted. Yeah. So to have yeah. to, to have HD, you know, stuff of stuff, even like a bloody Facebook memories thing that put stuff from four years ago or five years ago up. You look at it and go like, God, when was I ever so young? <laughs> it's like, it's only four years ago. Yeah, so we, the other day we were looking for um, videos we're taking of the kids early, like earlier on, and like you, you suddenly watch because you've got with the digital age, you've got so much stuff that's mm. been captured that you're watching stuff you have no memory of. Yeah, like, right. And, and like you're going, oh, we did that. <laughs> we, we went there, really. So <laughs> you, what was the instigation for you all to come back from PNG? Well, I mean, it was basically independence was in 75 and we started a little bit after that uh, and uh, like a lot of, so a lot of the activities wound down, do you uh-huh. know, like a lot of families returned after, after independence and so, uh, yeah, we, uh, so basically uh, we, we did, we, we'd been there for quite a while and um, yeah, back we came. Could you speak Pigeon English or anything like that? Yeah, I could. Wow. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I think that um, I mean, we were surrounded by Pigeon English, so it was, yeah. yeah, my dad was fluent in it. Um, yeah, and uh, I actually have a real distinct memory, and it's like a Super 8 memory, that we, so we came back from Papua New Guinea, like returning to Australia uh, via Sydney. And, of course, I'd just been in a completely green place, and Sydney to me was sort of this weird yellowy-orangey colour. And I just remember, because I'd never seen a traffic light before, never seen traffic, like there's no traffic in New Guinea. And so um, I just, I just, I was just spun out, like as a kid, you know, I was just like, oh my, what is this place? Yeah. And we basically got the Indian Pacific all the way across to Perth. No way. Yeah. So, yeah, that was how we got back to Australia. Well, that's, at least it gives you a amount of time, like to be in the bathosphere, just decompressing. <laughs> to yeah, be going, in the going, train. What is this place? Yeah, just <laughs> at least to get a, you know a good couple of days of just the wide brown land to, yeah. to take in yeah. uh, on that that rail journey because this is how you know before you could get a Jetstar fare for four hundred bucks exactly and the road was not bitumized. No, yeah. no, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't at all. And so Perth was you know was starting your own business uh, in, in your mind when you were in high school? Was that the path you were going to follow or were you going to become a teacher too? I was basically, 
I mean, I remember at school I was just bored out of my brains, like just, and and I, and I was really keen on um, anything aviation related. Yeah. So I remember, I can't remember what age I was, but I was just sort of had plans for an airline. Yeah, which is sort of you know. A, a short, maybe that's good. Yeah, you know, maybe that reflects your isolation in Perth that you think about. You know, we need to get out of here. Let's let's make an airline. But yeah, that's so. That, I remember just mucking around. I don't know how serious I was, but it was probably just more. You know, trying to pass the time. Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. School just sort of dragged on. Yeah. Were you, were, did you play up because you got bored, or did your mark suffer because you got bored? Uh, no, I, did, I was actually I was really fortunate in that um, my dad, because my dad was a teacher, he. Just said to the school, look, if, you know, if Bruce wants to stay at home, he can, um, you know, to, and, and that really got me through because I, I sort of was, you know, four days a week by the end of school, um, which, yeah, sort of helped the monotony. And um, yeah, like, so I, I never played up. It was more just, yeah, it's just something you had to get through. What did you, but, what did you do on the days? I mean, now you watch your own children when they have a day off. I watch Gigi when she has a day off. Uh, it's just in the phone and on the Netflix. What did you do on a day off? Like, and you're talking like, yeah, stuck in a suburb in Perth. Like, there was nothing to do. Like, Boredom was a real thing. <laughs> it was a real thing. And, um, yeah, I, I, I really, um, yeah, you must, I just must have had to use my imagination, I guess. Like, I can't think of any other way that. You pass the time. Like, Did you doodle jetliners and draw yeah. logos on the wings? I think, yeah, like, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Probably. Did you have a name for your airline? Um, it was. It was very predictable. It was just BMJ, which is my initials. So, yeah, let's, I'm glad that it never got off the ground. Like louder. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Bob Ansett, who else named an airline after themselves? <laughs> that's right. There's a lot of them. They're all failed. Oh, I don't know. Freddie Laker. Yeah. Laker Airlines. Yeah. Oh, Branson called it Virgin, but... Yeah, I don't think anyone else put their name on a plane that no. I can recall. When you got to tertiary education, were you a little more entertained or because it was something well, you were into? I, I actually, um, after school, I just wanted to get out there. So I, I, got, I took a job uh, at a truck stop on the Air Highway, which is basically the Nullarbor, like about a thousand k's from Perth, a little place called Norseman. And um, I just basically uh, yeah, did the night shift pumping diesel for all the trucks coming across. So you were, went from on board in a suburb in Perth to I'll go into like the most isolated petrol station on the face of the earth and do the <laughs> night shift. <laughs> well, as a, new, as a new kid, you just had to do the night shift. And um, Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm really selling Western Australia here. But anyway, the, 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 it, was, it, was, it was a pretty eccentric sort of place. Yeah. And um, yeah, like... Basically, I, mean, I think the big experience for me, like a lot of a lot of things, but is that classic? You could get the, the WA mentality. Like back then, the mining boom was going berserk. Like this is like late eighties, um, and so working away at this little truck stop, save up a little bit of money, um, and as you do as an eighteen-year-old, you invested in an equity trust, you know, in mining stocks. This is what you do in Perth, and um, and effectively. Like the mining boom crashed uh, on my birthday, actually, uh, in 87. And all so all that hard toil of night shifts at a truck stop was wiped out in one day in, you know, in a stock market crash. And so I basically, after working for a year with nothing, ended up with nothing. And I, like, I think, you know, that gave me a bit of a blank slate about, you know, you know, we, there's, you know things, bad things happen, you know, you, you know, at the end of the day, you're still still, you're still alive, and you just keep going. So, 
that, that's, that was my experience after school. And I, what did I, you do during the day? What did you do out there for well, a year? Well, well basically... Um, did you have a social life? <laughs> not much of one. I mean, we... we so, because it was a mining town, there was all these abandoned houses. Uh, and so, we got a house for free. So, like, it had no windows and stuff, but you could live in it. And so, there were a lot of just, you know, you know mucking around with cars that had been abandoned because it's a service station. A lot of people would get into the... Into Norseman after driving across from the east coast, run out of money and just abandon their cars. Uh, and so, you know, we'd get, you know, every week or two there'd be an abandoned car that, you know, you'd, you'd get. You could drive around until you ran out of petrol. Uh, and, yeah, you basically, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of mucking around to pass yeah. the time. Because you're describing a life that in a Western society it would be very difficult to replicate that now because you would have a phone in your pocket and you would be connected to the world no matter where you were. It's such a great point because I really was disconnected. Like I remember my, yeah, I remember like family sort of visited me, they'd catch a bus up and visit me you know, and go, what the hell? Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and then that was the only connection you had. A 12-hour bus ride from Perth. Mm, wow. Mm. And, yeah, so, yeah, it's actually really hard. To, it's really hard to recreate that sense of, um, yeah, there was like there's. Like no news, no. Uh, there's no because we didn't have any power because we were living in abandoned houses. So there's no television. There was no, like no nothing. Like you, it was just, you know, you little, yeah, a little speck in the yeah. yeah. And when what was the day you went? All right, that's it. I'm done. Uh, I was really like, it was getting on to summer where it gets bloody hot there, and um, and I went. All right, that's it. I'm done. And so I. I, I, I basically abandoned like a, a little mini and um, I painted it like rust brown. I'd basically done the undercoat but I never got around to painting it. So I loaded all my gear into it and I drove it out of town and, of course, it broke down after, you know, 20, 30 k's. And so I basically pushed it off the road into the bush, went to the next town to find a tow truck and um, this is in Cambalda. Basically, the tow truck driver drove all the way back, and of course, like I basically hadn't marked out where I'd pushed the car in, and yeah, you know, the bush in WA all looks the bloody same, and so I basically couldn't find it. So, so, you know, so basically, drove around and ended up having to pay a really big bloody tow truck bill for a car that I didn't actually get to tow, and um, then waited all night for a truck back to Perth, for a bus back to Perth, got back to Perth, got got in. Um, you know, got the newspaper and the, basically screaming on the front page of the paper was Black Monday, which is basically... <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> that, was, that, yeah. was the, that was the crash. So, it was, like, I was more looking at going, yeah, it was a Black Monday for me because I, <laughs> I lost all my positions in the car. And the, yeah, so I, somewhere in the Nullable Plain there's still a mini full of your stuff? <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the skateboards, mold LPs, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> a few T-shirts. That's right. There's not, not much value. Wow. Wow. So I guess when you've had that experience, it must really how, – how did that inform your next move? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I – I mean, I, I remember laughing about it because it was just ridiculous. You know, it was sort of like such a funny thing of yeah, coincidence. And it was just ridiculous. And then, I don't know, you just, I just – I don't know. I didn't really dwell on it. No? Just, yeah. Just, yeah. But you said you had this opportunity to start from nothing. Not many people get that opportunity to, to begin again, like completely free of yeah. anything that ties them. Yeah, yeah, and I, so I, I, um, I basically so enrolled in, enrolled in uni and uh, moved into a residential college because I didn't have anywhere to live, and 
Power. Um, Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah, and it, look, and it was a bit of a – actually, it was a, bit, it was a bit isolating too because I was sort of surrounded by uni kids that, you know, they, they had sort of come to uni without really thinking about it. Mm. You know, like they'd just gone to school, uni. Like, and, yeah. and for me it was like, I'd, yeah, I just felt like, oh, you know, it was, it was hard to sort of make a uh, – to connect. Do you know what I mean, with those kids? And so, uh, and obviously I had no money, so I, I worked at the university in the kitchen, to, which sort of would give you money to half, and then I, 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 they gave me a bursary. They, they, they looked after me, so um, I, could, I could afford to live there. And um, uh, yeah, that was great. What was that? So I started off doing economics at University of Western Australia uh, and failed pretty much everything except for the economics, um, failed the accounting, failed the maths, uh, failed the law, and... Um, and I had this great, like, I said, I had this great meeting with them. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll transfer into arts. So I went across and saw the, the I think they called them sub-deans or something of arts, um, this horrible woman. And she actually looked at me and went, what, you think you will just take the riffraff from economics? Like, um, she said, look, I'm going to exclude you for a year. Like, you know, go away and do something else. And um, I was a bit like, really? Like, I'm like, do you that's, you know, like, would have thought more of the arts faculty than joined. Uh, and so, so basically, I um, in the arts building, I got on the phone and rang up Murdoch Uni, which is this brand sort of pretty new uni um, that nobody really knew much about. Tiny, I only had a few. Yeah, I had probably twelve hundred students at the time, maybe even less. And I rang them up and I said, "Look, you know, UWA wants to exclude me for a year." And they were like, "Well, they were desperate. They were like, you know, we'll, you know, just come. We'll let you in." So basically, I went across to Murdoch and. Uh, and Murdoch's completely different. Like it was essentially, uh, it was formed in the late, you know, the mid seventies, and it had no grades then. Like it was just pass fail. Um, they really encouraged you. They actually had these general degrees, where they didn't care. You, know, you didn't graduate in anything other than just you just do the units you're interested in. Uh, and they made you do these foundation units that all the students had to do. Like, and so, like I, I did this once. The unit I did was fantastic but it was also like really memorable for me because while I was like we basically had a bunch of uh people doing the unit from the local prison down the road Canningvale wow and um you know in one of the lectures they basically played a film and um yeah while the lights were out uh the local uh bottle was robbed and of course when the lights came back on again all the students were there they were there at the beginning and they were there at the end, but we're not, you know, the police suspect that they might not have been there during, during the film, but they had a perfect alibi and, yeah, we were all interviewed and it was all like, yeah, no, they, were, they were there. Like, and, and so it's, it was just like a great introduction to uni because it wasn't those hallowed halls. It was more like just a complete bunch of riffraff. Yeah. Uh, and then I fitted, and I fitted in in that riffraff. Oh, okay. Right. And so from... I, I'm just trying to get a sense. Well, I didn't know anyone who was an entrepreneur or anyone who'd started their own business until years and years and years and years later. When did you start getting the idea that you could plot your own course and you could create your own thing? Oh, look, I think like, a really big thing is that like, you, know, you, can't, you can't forget, like if you graduated, like, so I got out of economics at Murdoch in the early 90s. Middle big, of a recession, big, unreal. huge recession. <laughs> like, and I remember applied for a couple of jobs. One was at the ABC and, like, didn't even get off first base and I can't remember the other place. And it was, there was literally no jobs. Mm. Uh, it was pretty grim. I was unemployed at the time. I was on the dole at that, that yeah. point. It was yeah. horrible. Yeah, it was. There was no, there was no sense of 
work coming up or anything, you know. And so, um, uh, so uh, my partner Kath was basically travelling to Europe and was on her way to Turkey, and I basically said, "Look, I'll meet you up. I'll meet meet up with you in Turkey." And um, so we basically, so I met up with her in Istanbul, and we were going to stay a couple of weeks and then travel overland to India, uh, where I've got family in, in um, Mumbai or Bombay. Uh, but basically, after a couple of weeks in Istanbul, it was like, it was what's going on with this place is nuts. It's yeah, you know, we ended up staying a couple of years. So, so really, um, I'd say, you know, that lack of opportunity uh, gave us the freedom to go right. Let's just try somewhere else. Mm. Um, and um, Istanbul was uh, in Turkey at that time was pretty crazy. Like there was, you know, inflation was running at about one hundred and ten, hundred and thirty percent. So we'd literally, you know, you start work somewhere, and after three months, you'd be working on. Do you mean like a tenth of what you, what you what you started out on? Um, but I, I honestly believe that um, stuff I learned about business really came from that time in Turkey because uh, it's just a really dynamic place and people just get – people start businesses and, and I'm sort of a little bit um, suspect of the sort of American startup culture stuff because it's very like, um, you know, it's very focused – it's very glamorous um, whereas in Turkey uh, it's just about – you just start. You just get going. You know, but I'm busy putting AstroTurf in my office, <laughs> buying a Tesla and <laughs> right. deciding where to put the pinball machine. <laughs> All right? Fully, fully. You've got yeah. you to understand. Yeah. You've got to understand. Um, just to rewind just one second, you mentioned your partner. You've been the same person? Yeah. What? Yeah. When you met at Murdoch? Actually, she was um, – I was actually um, at the University of WA's library because I, I lived on campus and, um, and she, she was studying at UW, UWA. So do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's, that's, so I basically bumped into her on the staircase. Oh, I actually knocked her wallet out of my, out of her hand, and all was of it the money. Was it a Yeah, it was, <laughs> <laughs> just, just quietly, not that quietly, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, and I know, cl- classy, really. What an opening move. <laughs> Audrey and I have uh, we have discussions about whose idea it was. Um, in the first week we were together, in the first week when we got to know each other, I. I knew a thing or two about um, how to get people to be interested in you. And I saw her knitting one day. I said, you know what? I really need a beanie. She was my makeup artist. And so she, I, I got her to knit me a beanie in the first week that we kind of – we were working together. I hadn't gone anywhere near her. Then I saw a photo – and then we went out for our date at the end of the, that week. And then I saw a photo of her the other day from the day of our date. She goes, you know how you keep saying that – that first date was only your idea? I said, yeah, I do. She goes, notice that I'm wearing jeans in that photo. I wore a skirt to come and see you. Uh-huh. Don't think for a second. <laughs> I was like, I've been claiming it this whole time. It was planning. <laughs> wow, so that's, that's great. And so I guess then you could at least say to your folks who are, you know, academics and that's all you're studying, you could at least go to them, listen, there's nothing happening here. Yeah. It's okay, I'm going. Oh, but I, think that, I mean, I think for both of us, I mean, it's, yeah, it's me in particular, my parents um, – they sort of like had midlife crises and went off and did crazy things. And do you know what I mean? So they, they, they'd sort of stopped being academics and, um, and were just, yeah. So I never had any pressure. Okay, uh, cool. Like, I think that the key thing, it's just such an important thing for a child to have parents that really don't care what you become. Like, yeah, they just want, they, they care about you, but they don't care what you become. And I really, I genuinely, like, my mum would say all these things. You know, like wanting to become a movie star or this or that, but it, 
never meant anything. Do you know what I mean? Like it, the, the parents really had no expectations. And so that allow, allowed us to be, you know, to muck around in Turkey for a few years. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. So when you say people would just, just start businesses, they're not, they're not waiting for the great idea. They're starting with the first idea. They're not waiting for 100 grand in capital. They're just starting with what they've got. Is that what you mean? That's exactly what I mean. No business plans, no, no talk, no just, right, there's a market. I'll start selling something to that market straight away. Uh, and, and look, the core thing to that is not worried about how it looks or, or you know, it being perceived as clunky or crappy or it's just like, well, it is what it is. Like, it, it's half-assed. I just started it. It might get better. We'll see how we go. Yeah, and that's, that's the core of what I learned in Turkey was that, that um, real, like, direct and, and, and it's a real business-cultured country, uh, mostly because, you know, it's had a very weak civil government for years. So there's no, there's no sense that the government's going to come along and provide services, you know, so people really had to do, the, do it for themselves. And right. So, so that, that changes the culture of the place, you know. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Because I, I certainly, having lived overseas, uh, lived in the States, incredibly wealthy country, Utterly yep. fucked healthcare. Yeah, completely. Utterly. Yep. People are terrified of getting ill. They're terrified of losing a job that gives them healthcare. Yep. In case That's then right. they never get another one. They've already had three kids while well, they've had this job and then their kids won't be covered. Yep. Um, yet here in Australia we have this where everything's going to be fine. Mm. I could fall down ten flights of stairs and mm. I would still get a house, you know, that would, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like fully. it does change yep. the way you approach. It does. Your approach to all, so there's a bit, a lot more at stake in a place like Turkey, I guess. Yep, exactly. So, so as a result, there's, um, I wouldn't call it risk taking, but essentially, people don't question the need to do it themselves or start something. It just has to be done. What successes and, did you have there? Well, we we didn't really have. We we had. I reckon. I mean, you sustained yourself. That's a success. Well, yeah, we, we had an incredible experience where we um. Like I worked for the Istanbul Film Festival for a while. I basically I wanted to work there because it looked like a great place to work. It's a big film festival, um, so I walked in off the street and I just said, "Look, you know uh, that they spoke English luckily." Um, and I said, "Look, I'm, I'm Australian and I want to learn Turkish. Um, you know, can I work for you for free?" And they were like, "This is a great novelty." Like, <laughs> like, like you know, they were like, "Sure." Like, so they just parked me in the public relations marketing department, and. Literally, like, the phone rang and they just pointed to the phone. And I'd said, like, I wanted to learn Turkish. And in that Turkish way, they were like, well, now you're about to learn Turkish. <laughs> <laughs> Answer the phone. Yeah. And so I basically picked it up and freaked and hung up. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was the you – know, and so literally they threw me in deep end and, and uh, yeah, and I, and I learned Turkish really fast. How long, um, and what were you doing to put food on the table while you're doing this gig for free? Well, basically, after a few months, uh, they gave me, they started paying me a really small salary, and then Kath, we, we were both teaching English as well on the oh, side. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So there was, there was, yeah. So we were just, yeah. But it, it literally was just putting food on the table, right? Um, and uh, then, so after doing the, so then and then worked on the Istanbul Film Festival, and then realised there was no Australian films in the program. And at the time, Australian cinema was going crazy. Like, we had a lot of great films coming out. So uh, me and Kath organised an Australian film festival in Istanbul in 94. So we basically um, 
worked at the back of a friend's place and you know wrote letters to everybody we knew and we you know and and put together a program found sponsors uh contracted with a cinema uh and put a put a festival on and it was just we were so naive and green and um and we learned so much from that experience like we um like we learned so much about uh australia uh like a great example is we ran Qantas up uh, thinking that they would sponsor and had uh, someone on the other end of the phone like literally just burst out laughing going like where's your next festival going to be Bangladesh that was the that was like <laughs> that was the that was like mm, thanks great and but we actually had Singapore Airlines step in out of the blue like just a lovely country manager who was from India who just felt sorry for us and went we'll sponsor you know and it's funny to think now, like you think about how many Australians have been to Turkey and it's like one of the major tourism destinations, but back then it was nobody. And I think the Istanbul route for, for Australian travellers is now Singapore Airlines' fourth biggest route. So, wow. so it's sort of come, come out of nowhere. So, yeah, in, yeah, in some crazy sense, um, uh, I'm not saying that the, the festival was all of that, but it, do you mean like that there was a yeah. bit of foresight there? Do you know what I mean from that for them to sponsor it? And so anyway, we basically put it together and we things went so badly wrong. Like we, <laughs> you know, the cinema we contracted was run by the mafia. Excellent. And we didn't know. Brilliant. And uh, so we were extorted. We basically paid the, the rent once and then we were extorted to pay the rent twice, which oh, we didn't no. pay, so we were threatened we were threatened to be shot and oh, but it didn't happen. It was all, yeah, anyway. <clears throat> so and we, we we made lots of mistakes and a meatball, I mean, you know, like it was a completely entrepreneurial activity. Yeah. Uh, in the way that it was just because there was no we there was no backing for it it was just us um, and um, and 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 just completely surprising like things you know we we thought we'd have so much problem with censorship uh, yeah with the films like that the, the Turkish censor would have to watch that and would reject half of them and and then I just bumped into the chief censor in the street uh, like literally in the street I said look this is what we're doing and he went oh yeah no problem like. <laughs> 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 and, um, yeah. Just don't, don't tell him you've programmed Bad Boy Bobby. Everything will be well, fine. We only had Rumpelstomper. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and we my had, God. Yeah. And we actually did have the Australian Embassy contact us to say, look, I'm not happy about, you know. Rumpelstomper. Yeah, this projection of Australia. And, and we, we said, well, have you seen it? And like, no, no, but we've heard about it. And, and we said, look. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Anyway, we managed to win that argument, so well, no, it's important. Uh, and it and um, I think we just really freaked out a whole bunch of Turkish people with Romperstop, but they were just like, what the hell? They didn't even know there were Vietnamese migrants in Australia. Right. Then alone there was like 
different nationalist right wing violence. And it was all, you know, it was, you know, but it, but it was all about they knew nothing about Australia. Yeah. And we actually had a chunk of people come to the festival who thought it was an Austrian film festival. Brilliant. Who walked out going, like, where was the snow? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I had no idea Austria had wow. vast stretches of desert. Like, what did you, <laughs> I mean, many a relationship has uh, gone the way of the business when the business fails that is started by two people who are in a relationship. What did you learn about keeping a relationship together, dealing with a business that's going through mafia extortion, censorship issues, <laughs> diplomatic <laughs> upsetness? Well, <laughs> I mean, essentially trust, obviously, and um, a sense of humour, like with the situation, but... Like it took its toll as well. Like it took its toll. It's not, it wasn't like, it was stressful. Um, and I, I think, yeah, you, yeah, we learnt from it. That's the main, the main thing. Mm. Um, yeah. Because essentially, I mean, when, if you wanted to talk about, you know, starting a company, it's, it's, she's your co-founder. The two of you are in this together. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, like, I guess a film festival, it's got a, like a, it's got an end point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, you, know, you, you really work up to the date mm-hmm. that it's going to launch and then it's that crazy week where it runs and then it's over and, you know what I mean? Like, mm. um, whereas a company, you know, I mean, that's why I, th- I would find it really impossible to imagine starting a company with my partner. Like, I just, do you know what I mean? Like, because it's, yeah, yeah it, it, starting a business is just such a long-term, um, yeah, they, they sort of go on and on and on. Do you know what I mean? So, mm. yeah, yeah. So, having that separation is good. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. yeah. I mean, like, so, like, um, so yeah, doing the, so the film festival, like, so doing, doing the film festival, like, well, that's one of the things I learned from it. Mm-hmm. It was like just how involved these things are. Okay. Yep. And so from, from there, uh, where did, where did you two go? Uh, well, basically, we, we actually came back to, we we're pretty shell shocked. We got back to Perth, uh, and, uh, we basically actually both found jobs really easily. So, funnily enough, Kath, because of the festival, uh, an academic at Murdoch Uni went, who's an Australian cinema expert, went, oh, look, I'll, I'll give you a scholarship to do a PhD. So so she got that scholarship. And I, I basically did what I did in Istanbul, which was to walk into the uni and go, I'll work for free for you if you've got a job. And uh, they gave me – and I worked for free for like a month. And sure enough, you know, they handed me a job. So it's actually one of the best ways to get work is just to, work, is just to volunteer yourself for free. And I, I feel sorry now because – yeah, well, OH&S and insurances and stuff. It's like kids can't do it anymore. Mm. Like they can't go, they can't sort of front up to a crazy big company and go, can I just do mm. something for you? Because it'd be like, oh, no, you have to be a part of an intern program. Or, what happens you if you get hurt? We have to induct you. All that stuff. Who you covers you all if you're, stuff. you yeah. know, doing this thing for a day and doing that thing for a day. Yeah. You, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I basically worked at Murdoch and I was really lucky in that I was in the, again, I was in the marketing department, but they were running a, um, a, a wonderful uh, gentleman, Russell Ellsgood, was running a science communication program called STAR, which is about peer tutoring. We're involved high school students coming on campus and, and uni students going on into schools in science. And uh, he needed a coordinator for the program. So uh, I ran that program with him uh, for about three or four years. Mm. Um, and that was a great uh, education in uh you know, working within a, within a university but then also across the education sector and, you know, working with kids. So you're starting to get into bureaucracy. Did that – you worked in the government for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. But I actually after – I mean, I was working at Murdoch and then we moved to Sydney and then I worked in advertising for a little bit uh-huh. and then from advertising went into 
was, I, was, I was lucky in that um, uh, there's a new unit formed at the Department of Planning, the Sustainability Unit, and they were looking for non-planning people, uh, people with a bit of a marketing background. So I was able to – that's how I sort of made the leap into uh, working for the state government. And how is, uh, how is that? Oh, a complete eye-opener, like fully – uh, I mean, for a start, it was those crazy days of dysfunctional Labor government from hell. Like, it was the car government yeah, and uh, there was – so, like, there was a rotating like, – yeah, you know, we must have had four or five ministers in the space of a few years. Like, your business card would literally be changing, like, every few months. Like, wow. you just – you couldn't – the department kept changing its name. Um, and, yeah, I learned so much. I worked with it's, – it's funny, like, you work in these – like, whether it was in advertising or – university or government there's dysfunctionality in the institution but then you work with really great people within them do you know what I mean? so like you sort of um and, and that's what it was really like with government it was working with some really great people but you'd have to say the the actual work itself was you know um well as we know like the you know there's it, it, a real issue in you know in new south wales in terms of planning and mm. you know, and and uh, especially in those years, it was it was, it was so, crazy time. So sustainability, as in, like, how can we what sustain our city? How are we planning yeah. enough? Have we got enough dams? That sort of stuff. Yeah, we, we, we essentially we were really uh, we were given the charter to. Um, so the sustainability unit's mission was to to come up with some reforms in the planning system, and uh, really we had some great advice. We worked with Rod Simpson, um, who's now one of the greatest Sydney commissioners, and. Uh, he and, and basically Bruce Taper, who directed who directed the unit, and and as a team, uh, came up with uh, basics, which is the building sustainability index, you know, index, which is essentially about reducing water and power consumption. Mm-hmm. And so that was the policy that we we worked on, uh, and uh, and amazingly, it became, it, you know, it's it still exists, um, and is still a part of the planning system. So, so that was it. Was a really uh, to be honest, I feel really honoured to be um, to have worked for government for a brief period of time and also be part of a reform that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're really, you know, while the, the tool that we developed can be improved, at the end of the day, it was the first online planning tool in Australia that was that used real data. Like so, you know, planning tools just used to they just they'd be abstract. They'd be based on endless reports. Uh, they'd be offline and paper-based. And our tool actually has got, you know, it's got a um, you know, database and a platform and, 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 and it's pulling real data. And, and then that is basically determining uh, you know, water savings and energy savings that people uh, could be making in new buildings. So, yeah, and, that, that's, and that's, people now get a basic certificate if they're building a new apartment or a new house, which sort of says that you know, they are reducing their consumption over – do you remember what the average usage yeah, is? Yeah, once you start getting an eye for that data, I mean, it's like that with anything. You know, when you buy, so when you first get your, I don't know, Toyota Corolla, all you do is drive around and see Corollas. When I first started working in radio, when I listened to radio, I just heard every station completely yep. differently because now I knew how it was built. Did it change the way you looked at a city and went, how the fuck did that thing get built? Yeah, Who yeah. put that there? Yeah, what, fully. What the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fully. And, and also it changes the, the way that um, effectively – it's the structure of the city. Mm. Like, like the way that arcane rules change how people live, do you know what I mean? In a real day-to-day, day-to-day level. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like the way that – and those arcane rules might not have been really thought about in terms of how the, the implication for how people live. I mean, a, a real simple example is 
uh, when before we moved to Sydney, we were in Perth, we the internet had just come, and we, we effectively, uh, you know, one of our neighbours got an internet account, and we slung cables over across the roof and created a local area network Naturally. amongst about two or three houses, and that's obviously you know fully uh, you know it's illegal, like you can't you know because because t- t- you know Telstra or Telecoms Australia at the time has the monopoly over yeah. you know only it can do those services, and yeah. so so you had a real sense of the way that. Rules and markets were constructed, you know, like, mm. and, and the way that everybody then really takes that as a given, like that's how things operate. Mm. And you know, it's 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 not. It's like it, it's it's so changeable. Yeah, I think about that a lot. You know, I think about certainly now we're moving into a world where uh, it's it's becoming really economically viable to have a local power storage uh, in a home, and that someone might have the capacity financially and roof space to make enough power more than their house, why can't they sell it to the people that live three metres from their power box? Yep. Apparently no. Yep. You know, like why not? You know, these, these are sort of things yep. that with a stroke of a pen could change, yep. ultimately change, you know, the way our yep. society lives. But yeah. one, of, one of the wins we had with, um, it, when I was working at planning was that you couldn't uh, use rainwater in Sydney for anything. Like drinking or you know washing clothes or anything, like. But you could in the country, you could. But in Sydney, you couldn't. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. working with the health department and changing that rule, like you know, that was that was a, that was a big one. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that really was just what you're saying. It was a stroke of a pen to go. Okay, now people can. Do you mean it can be yeah. used? And was uh, it there that you started getting into the idea of? Car- hey, Frankie, call it, man. He turns up. He turns up on every podcast. Um, <laughs> Was it there that you started to get the idea about the car sharing? I, I, I had a, like I had the interest in transport for ages because yeah. I've always been a bit of a transport <laughs> geek. And uh, when I was back in Perth, I was very you know I remember for the university I did like a cycling policy, and I realised that I realised that cycling was going nowhere in Australia. It's and a real shame, man. Real shame. It's just my that's my thing. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. Me too. <laughs> me too. I, I, I was really because yeah because yeah I could never get over the different benefits of cycling and the way that, yeah. And so, and so car sharing for me, like uh, uh, moving to Sydney and thinking about uh, living in Newtown and all these parked cars, I was really aware of, uh, you know, I was a new mi- new migrant to Sydney. I just didn't need a car. Like the public transport was pretty good. Uh, it was just now and then. And me and Kath were going through that whole, after a couple of years in Sydney, going, Oh, it actually would be convenient to have a car, like, but we would never use the thing. Like, it would just sit idle during most of the time. And so, um, so I've been thinking about it for quite a long time. And and then uh, a friend, Barry Seppin, Sepping, showed me a um, article in a in a, a magazine about a car share system that had started in San Francisco. And that's where I went. Oh, okay, Do you mean like if it's working in the US, then like it's so. So, uh, I, yeah, so basically I was really lucky to, um, uh, to team up with Nick Lowe, who's just living around the corner in Australia Street. We basically bumped into each other at a local cafe and I just started going on about car sharing and all these bloody cars. Wives, and- senses and co-founders. You bump into a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. Should be, should be, should be more careful. <laughs> no, it's working out, man. <laughs> Yeah, and, 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 and we basically, yeah, so, and we, and, and Nick was, yeah, 
I, I, yeah, I was fully ensconced in um, state government. And so for me, it was like, yeah, I thought that would be, you know, I sort of had the idea of work, delivering it through state government mm-hmm. and, of course, getting nowhere with that. Um, and Nick was like, let's just, let's just start it ourselves. And you went, I've been to Turkey, I know how to do this. <laughs> just buy some cars. Well, yeah, yeah, well, it's more, yeah, I just hadn't, hadn't learned. All right. How, many, yeah. how big was the fleet that you started with? So we basically scrounged. We, we, Nick had this, this great sort of, sort of metallic red um, high, um, Hilux, dual cab Hilux, um, and like a like secondhand, really old. You know, and um, uh, we'd bought, we basically bought to start car sharing this little uh, Corolla station wagon that was diesel that was from Fiji, so it was a secondhand import. And we then talked to a Volkswagen dealership who happened to have uh, polo that Nicole Kidman had just given back because, you know, they just would, they would, you know, hand cars out to people, um, uh, yeah, just for, for PR. And, yeah. and they were like, we've got this polo, Nicole doesn't need it and you know, we'll give it to you for a few months. So that was how we started. We started with this shiny new polo and two really dodgy secondhand cars <laughs> and um, and we basically got two locations, like two what we call pods in Newtown uh, and I think, look, the big thing that yeah, we, 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 we went to the Newtown Festival in 2002 and, uh, like, just asked a whole bunch of people. Really amazing. Like, most people were just like, what the hell? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, maybe we'll bring the cars back. Um, yeah, stupid idea. And then there was, like, a sort of core of people that were like, yeah, that's exactly what I need. Like, a small, small group. Um, and we got names and addresses. And then, you know, a few months later, asked them to a meeting at Newtown Neighbourhood Centre and and put forward Newtown Car Share as an idea and asked for a deposit from those 12, uh, 12 or 13 people for $500 to kick the program off. And, um, yeah, basically uh, Fiona Court, uh, she was one of the founding members and she just whipped a checkbook out and went, right, who do we, get, who do we make it out to? And everybody just followed and... Um, uh, and that's that's basically how we had our first sort of twelve, you know, founding members. So it's six six grand. Yeah, that's literally it. And we put in ten grand each. I'm pretty sure. And um, and and the cars. And this is before smartphones too. Um, yeah, fully. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, 100%. yeah. yeah so this, this you know, Nokia, no one's this, unlocking it remotely oh, yeah, yeah, or anything all, like this that. Is, this is Nokia days. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, fully. Yeah, yeah. And and look, yeah, we we did. Um, I mean, like in some ways, uh, yeah, we we did a real. Uh, um, a German sort of approach to it, which is simply like simple technology. Like, because car sharing started in Germany and it was just lockboxes. Like, we just had a key in a box and doing you know, it. We originally put it on the window of the car, but then that, so they got smashed and stolen. So, we then put it on poles. Uh, and that's how we operated the scheme for years. Like, with just like everybody having one generic key. Like, yeah, that was it. So, um, in fact, um, a lot of other car share companies that started around the time, same time or a bit later were really obsessed with the technology. Uh, and we saw it as important, but not it's not the primary thing. The primary thing was the product and the service. And so um, we learned a lot. Me and Nick learned a lot about, uh, you know, what actually matters to a customer. Yeah, and, and no one pilfered the vehicles? Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They got, they, they, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, customers didn't peel for the vehicles. No, 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 no. But yeah, our customers were great. Our customers were – I mean, I, I, that's probably the reason why we kept going with it. Like I think literally after three or four months, uh, we noticed the cars were really clean. 
and looked after. And and that to me and Nick was like, all right, well, these people are, they're treating it really well. This is, because like who wants to do a business where people are being a pain in the ass? Yeah. Um, so uh, we had that basic uh, respect for our customers that they were like good people mostly. And and that's, you know, and, and, and sort of that, you know, that kept us going. And then we just sort of kept adding more and more customers, like a lot of word of mouth and built that base. And so even today it's like go get members. So they're good people. One of the things that must have been a, a tricky thing was because car spaces in Sydney are rare as hen's teeth, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in the CBD. How the hell did you get car spaces? It was really, it was really hard. Because um, they're parked there and they stay there. Yeah, And you yeah, can't, yeah. If, I, if I'm like, because my, yeah. my shrink lives in Surrey Hills, there's yeah. always this, oh, I've got a spot, fuck, I can't park there. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, fully. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, the whole point of it is that, um, uh, like, the next member needs to be able to find it easily. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so. That's so always in the same place. Yeah, so you need a, you need a simple, simple So job. how did you get them? The- well, you know, when we started, um, we actually, the first two pods, one was a deregulated parking bay, so where there was no. There was no controls, so we didn't need to ask anybody. And the other one, we actually had asked um, South Sydney Council, like, if we can use this car park. And they were like, yeah, sure. And so we sort of got permission. And then a month later, they were amalgamated with the city of, like, the state government abolished them and amalgamated with the city of Sydney. And so we were like, oh, well, you know, it went into limbo lane. We were like, oh, they said yes, so we'll park there. And so uh, it was basically a car space next to the Erskineville Hotel and the funniest thing is we've now parked there pretty much up until, you know, this year and finally got a letter from the RTA, from the RMS saying actually the council doesn't own that land, we own the land <laughs> and we're selling it. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so we're going to sell it for housing. So, so our first, you know, our first thought, what we thought was a legitimate spot yeah. is not legitimate at all. Um, right. And, and from there we really um, – we, we were really lucky in that North Sydney Council – uh, at the time, had a great transport team, and um, I'm, I'm saying they probably still do. I just, you know, but they, they had a great team, and and they they were really uh, they really were like, let's just try this. Like, really, it's a few car bays. Like, what can go? Yeah, it was the state government through the uh, RTA at the time had said, well, look, you can't do anything until we come up with a guideline. Like, we, we've got to, we've got to look at this and work out what the hell it's what are the, what are the implications for the state and. And North Sydney Council was a bit like, oh, well, you know, it's just a few bays here and there. It's not going to matter. And so so we did. We rolled out some car bays through North Sydney Council and sure enough, people were not particularly fast. You know, there's a few complaints here and there, but you know, the members, you know, the members in that local, um, in, in that council area uh, raved to the council about, you know, thanks for this new service. This is great. I live in McMahon's Point. There's no parking. I don't need a car. You know, Fantastic. And that's how we got started. And so, so it basically, uh, uh, yeah, councils like the City of Sydney came on board once the actually the RTA came out with a guideline. Uh, and at the same time, we managed to get councils in Victoria on board. And so we just worked tirelessly with councils on a policy. And um, but you're able to show to them that you know every one space you give us takes this many people's need for a space away from that, the area. That's really that's really what it's all about. Yeah, it, it's just about that if someone doesn't own a car, they walk more, they use a local, they, they shop locally, uh, they, they, they drive less, they're giving up something. Uh, and if you've got like 20, 30 people giving up something, 
just to give those people who have given up something, one car bay that we can operate out of is the basis of the service. And a lot of people go, oh, well, but yeah, you're giving that bay to a private company. But it's like it's how the service operates. The alternative is for the government to operate it. Like, you know, just like they operate the buses and the trains. Mm. Like, would you like to use a car share service operated by the state government? Yeah, it's nope. no, <laughs> it, it wouldn't happen. And, 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 and there are cases in, say, Italy where they've done, you know, 20 million euro car share programs which are government run. Do you know what I mean? And they've yeah, just wow. they've flamed and, you know, crashed. So, so, uh, you know, we, we, um, we work really hard as a private business on the service aspect of it. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's, it's people who have – who could park a car and take up space and hardly use the bloody thing. And there's millions of cars like that in Sydney. Mm. So, you know, don't, don't go, don't go uh, anywhere much. Um, and instead they're actually returning that space to the public. Do you find your customers uh, feel a sense of uh, pride that they belong to a community of people like themselves? Yeah, I think, that, I think they do. I think they – I just think that they know – that this is just a, a better way to live in a city. Like, you know, that the sort of suburban model of every house having one or two cars, you know, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not, it, it's expensive, it's not efficient, it's not, you know, and, and, and people like instead with GoGet, it's like a whole range of vehicles that they can use rather than just that one car. Mm. There's vans, there's utes, there's, yeah. you know, like there's people movers. And so they, I think they just feel like – so. When we started, it was like the idea of the service seemed really odd. Now to like millennial uh, drivers coming through, like millennial members, it's like they think that this is really normal and they look at car ownership and go, what's going on with that model? Like that's like really? Like I've got to pay that much for that and how much am I going to use it? And part of it is because of the phone, the smartphone. Like, you know, the smartphone, you know, they update regularly, you know, it's – you know, they're paying a service fee to use it, but like they access everything through it. So that whole idea of this clunky, big owned car, do you know, it just seems like... It used to be the only way to get to can contact your friends though. It used it, it to be the was, only way to socialise. Like it was the mobile phone. It was. It got you around and it, it, it made you helped you engage made, yeah. with your community, but now you can engage with the community in the palm of your hand yeah. anywhere on the planet, even a and, truck stop in the middle of the Nullarbor. <laughs> and you can also... You can also basically organise the sucker who does own the car to come pick you up. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've been watching that Uber case in the states uh, quite quite closely, and the the CEO resigning the other day, and yeah. some of the shit that's going down in those hearings. Where, you know, one of the advisors, you know, talks about a woman driver picking up. A, did you read what happened? No, I didn't. Okay, so they've got the board, and they're all sitting there going, "Yeah, we've got a real problem here at Uber. We've got the the one of the board of directors says." Um, Oh, you know, someone says, oh, the, if the women, if there's a woman driver and she picks up another woman, you know, they're basically talking about, you know, women who drive in Uber, uh, ride in Uber tend to not talk with the driver. And and one of these guys says, well, if there's a woman driver, there'll be way more talking. And Ariana Huffington's one oh, of the... Dear. Yeah, Ariana Huffington's one of the advisors. She's going like, Barry, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> no. Like, this is happening in the hearings, trying to make it a more female-friendly company. Oh, and their board of directors is like, whoa, man. It's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that I don't particularly believe that that business model is great. They're, they're running on a lot of venture capital. It's basically um, un, you know funding yeah, yeah, we, funding we, them like, their loss. Yeah, we don't we don't. I mean, the thing about GoGet is it's, we've been profitable from the year start. Bingo. Uh, we haven't had and look look Uber 
it's 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 an open question. Is it a viable model? Like uh, I see them spending a lot of money on marketing, which uh, makes me think, well, you know, that's, that cost of acquisition is mm. really high and you should be at a point now where you don't need to market because I, I can't think of any business that's got more free marketing than Uber. Yeah. Um, so I wonder about that business model where you're still giving away um, discounts and rides yeah. and um, like – but – Structurally, it's a huge change in terms of how people get around, like, oh. and they've created a, ma- a massive new market. And it's, it's yeah, as I said, it's an open question, and, yeah. I, and I have no. Int- I, I, I just as willing. I, yeah, I'd love them to succeed too. So it's not like I'm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. From a- I'm. Re- I'm really interested to see what. I mean, there's fifty three thousand, fifty four thousand about their Uber drivers in Australia. When it comes to an autonomous vehicle deployment mm. in Australia, individual ownership might be completely off the table. 53,000 as a fleet, fairly attainable mm. if, if one particular company can back it. That could be the start of autonomous vehicles on Fully. the streets. You know, this sort of thing Fully. is, is that, that kind of thing fascinates me. Yeah. All right. And is that their long play? Is that their. Oh, yeah, fully. They're, 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 they're disrupting they're, transport so much. There's a, lot, lot, there's a lot of people working on exactly that. Yeah. And Uber is part of that. And it's, it's, um, and it's just as relevant for us too. Like we, mm. we, yeah, we, we see it as a part of our future too. Do you remember yeah. that? that, that uh, and, and it's happening. In a, it's, it's happening in small ways. In that, yeah, with the GoGet fleet, we're getting a lot of semi-autonomous technology coming through, like yeah. like collision avoidance technology. Yeah. Which, My brother's car's got that. It's frick the lane correction. Yep, he's yep, yep. freaking amazing. Yeah, that's that's the start of it. And so, um, yeah, it's it's. I think um, yeah, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of regulatory hurdles, but you know, uh, the thing that I think is like in aviation, there's been so much. So much of the systems have gone autonomous with airlines and, and people every day will ha- hop onto a commercial jet and put their lives in the hands of computers. Uh, the pilots are there and they're important, but the computers are equally important and they don't question that. Like that and, and, and so sort of stuff about, oh, will people use autonomous cars? It's like, well, we're using autonomous vehicles in the sky at, you know, a thousand kilometres an hour, like, with terrible consequences if things go wrong. So we're already there. 90,000 flights every day. Yep. Every day. Yep. And, 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 and the safety of those flights is underwritten by computerised autonomous systems. Yeah. Oh, that's, like that's, oh, that's, uh, it's going to be a very interesting couple of years. You know, think about uh, Georgia. She's, she's 13. You know, will she ever own her own car? Maybe. Will she ever own more than one car? Probably not. Will she? I mm. mean, my nephews are five. Yep. Will, will they ever have to learn how to drive? Probably not. Yep. 10 years from now, 11 years from now when they're 16, yep. I'm going to doubt it. Yeah, New South Wales, the number of uh, people under 25 that have got a driver's licence is now below 50%. So, uh, yeah, it's that's, that's really something. It's a big change. That is that is really something. Yeah. So off the back of GoGet, GoGet's pumping along. And at what point did you go, this is going all right, I might just go and hedge my bet somewhere else as well. <laughs> did you yeah, go, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go and disrupt the optics industry. That's just, like, complete, that's just complete foolishness. You know where did that, that? Where did that come from? <laughs> really, it, it really came from like I, I actually before go get because I've been a glasses wearer since I was you know lots sort of late teens and I just had the shits with why they cost so much and why they were so bloody. It was like this sort of just annoying thing you know, in your life. You're a bit like you need a glasses. Um, why were they so inconvenient and? I was, I was basically, um, I think it was year 2000, I, I happened to be visiting a friend in Amsterdam who, um, whose uh, boyfriend was a DJ and, 
And he said, look, it was a Saturday afternoon and he said, look, if, if you're not doing anything, you can come to my gig. I've got a gig at an optometrist. And I was like, you really? Like, yeah, I'll come along. Like, what? Like, I just had no idea what a gig at an optometrist could be. And sure enough, he turned up to a glasses shop, set up a turntable, set his records up, started playing sort of funky lounge sort of music. And before you knew it, people were coming in off the streets and they were basically – popping on glasses and dancing and seeing what they look like dancing in the glasses. Like it was like, it was just a light bulb moment for me going, oh man, the retail in Australia with optometry is just like so crap because it's all medical. Do you know what I mean? It's all like white shiny surfaces and do you know what I mean? And I re- and, and lab coats. It's all lab coats and it's all, and I realised, ah, oh, actually, yeah, what I saw in Amsterdam was, you know, someone thinking about what people do in glasses. Do you know what I mean? Which yeah. is, you know, that they wear them dancing. And so, and, and so that really got me sort of thinking about it. And then because of, because of um, you know, my dear family in India, I like visited them you know, as much as I could. And every time I'd go, I'd go to a, like a local glasses shop, which was great. It was like, it was a fantastic glasses shop, quality glasses. And they were like a fifth the price of what you could get in Australia. And, um, um, and you, you're, the funny thing about Australia is, like, we've got so many migrant communities and almost every migrant community actually goes back to its home country. It waits to go back to its home country to get glasses. Really? Like, the, you know, if you're Indian or if you're Chinese or if you're Turkish or if you're, like, you'll actually hang, into, hang on to your glasses. When you, when you go back there, you'll go get another pair of glasses because in Australia they're just so expensive. And, um, and so, that, so that sort of um, – it was really just eating away. It was sort of annoying me. And um, – um, yeah, I had a chance uh, yeah, with, with yeah, Go Get Up and Running. I had a chance to, to sit back and go, well, you know, you know, what else can I muck around, you know, what, what, what else can I muck around with? And um, I teamed up with Jason McDermott, who um, uh, was, was equally like a glasses wearer and equally like these are dumb. Uh, and his experience was that he'd, he'd worn this like crazy scratch pair of glasses all around, like he'd gone travelling and worn them for like a whole year, spent a whole year travelling and probably didn't see much. Do you know what I mean? Because he had a pair of lenses in that were scratched and the, the lenses probably cost about four, four or five bucks to replace, but he never got around. You know, like it's that sort of craziness of uh, vision being so important, but you just, you put up with so much. And so we really just got started with, well, how don't we just rethink this whole thing, like from a blank, you know, a blank sheet of paper. What do you actually, as a customer, what do you need? And it was really amazing process to go through because you go, well, you want them to be really strong and durable. And you look at glasses, you know, the regular glasses, and they're all bloody fragile with their stupid, you know, metal springs and hinges and all this stuff that can break. And and the reality as a glasses wear, and at that time I had young kids, is that they're throwing them around like this, like willy-nilly. Like, in fact, I went for a whole period of wearing contacts because you literally couldn't keep a pair from being busted. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so we, we – we, we, it's a blank sheet of paper and we just came up with a really universal strong design which was – and we called the business Dresden after the German city because um, we really wanted to capture um, uh, a sense of manufacturing of – of you know, the German sense of manufacturing, which is quality things that are that are ordinary and everyday. And Dresden is actually where they invented tea bags and toothpaste tubes and bras and you know, SLR cameras and all this stuff that you know like it's just really handy everyday stuff. And so, so we basically um, came up with a prototype, built a built a fantastic team, uh, and 
took it to the Newtown Festival again. Yeah. And, um, yeah, had great response from people and launched really a crazy business uh, with our first retail store in Newtown in uh, July 2015 where we basically were like, we're going to sell one pair of glasses. We're going to sell it for $49. Uh, with the best lenses you can get, so we we teamed up with Zeiss Australia uh, to sell yeah, quality quality lenses. We're going to put a ten year warranty on it, uh, and we're going to make them on the spot. So you can walk into the store and you can walk out again with a brand new pair of glasses. None of this waiting around. And that was really it was really about uh, getting close to the consumer and convenient and giving them giving them turning glasses from this ridiculous once every two or three years or once a year like long winded you know sales process mm. to this just thing that you just you pick it you pick up you know, why can't one of the prescription sunnies no worries 10 minutes we'll get it done for you off you go like get on with your life like it was really about making glasses not such a big thing in your yeah. life like strangely you know just yeah you know, and uh, being a glasses wearer all that all that time it was like why yeah i don't care about them so yeah, what did you I, what did you figure out that the besides not having DJs, uh, <laughs> we did, actually did. We actually did. Of course you did. Yeah, yeah. But what besides, <laughs> besides not having DJs, what what other things were the glasses optometry industry doing that you didn't? Real, they were real. Funda- they were really fundamental things they were doing wrong, and that one was that was so transactional. They weren't loyalty based. So whenever you came in to get a pair of glasses, they didn't know what you'd had before. They there was no. It was just like it was a sale. Mm. They did, and I couldn't understand it because if you've got an eye problem, like, and you've got a prescription, then it's from a, as a marketer, you go, "This is gold." I know something about this person. Like, yeah, it's it's like I, I should then be able to basically create services and products for them because I know about them. But instead, it's like you walk in and it's like, "Oh, they're seeing you for the first time," and so there was no loyalty. Um, and then the process itself was really subterfuge, like really like. So why is that one $300 and that one $100? Like, because they're really just bits of plastic or, you know, like, and what, why is this lens I paying an extra fee? Yeah, do you remember with cars, you used to get that r- r- rust-proof treatment? You know, oh. you, you know you, they'd go, do you want the extra rust-proof for Are you seven? sure you want to <laughs> drive it out of here without that rust-proofing, pal? You'll be back in here in three months and I don't want to, you know. Yeah, and you'd be a bit like, uh, don't you just make them rust-proof out of the factory? Like, really? Do yeah. I have to? <laughs> like, and so it's exactly like that with glasses. Like, there's all this sort of like extra tints and this and that and bamboozling consumers. And so... The level of trust is really low. I've got to be. Re- I've got to be really sus too. With isn't it, wasn't that one company in Italy? Wasn't it, isn't it Luxottica? Luxottica that, yeah. They just make everything. Yeah, and it's just really arbitrary. Like as you said, this set of frames is eighty bucks, but these frames are two hundred and seventy. That's right. It's really, it's come off two conveyor belts next to each other. Yeah, and also um, um, the whole, like it, it, the whole industry is based around that sort of uh, this sort of idea of selling you some sort of brand. Do you know what I mean? And we were a bit like, ah, oh, really? Like Prada, Gucci, like all these, like Porsche design. You think they probably, the Porsche people probably never even saw the glasses. They've just licensed it out for, yeah. you know, 50 cents a glass, whatever it is. And yeah. and so you're paying for stuff that just was irrelevant, and especially when like a lot of people just lose glasses or break them really quick. And, you know, and, it, and so we went, like, let's, let's just make a pair of really strong glasses that are really fun. And then we had a real stroke of luck because we, we, we were going to make them lots of colours. Like we wanted to make them about eight colours. But we teamed up with this great manufacturing um, outfit in Lakemba, Astabase Industries, 
And they were just really open to us mucking around on the factory floor, which is you know good of them. And we realised, all right, we we could actually make millions. We can actually make unlimited colours. And so colour just became our thing. We were like, instead of it being about, yeah, it's just like, you know, we could just do any crazy colour. And and then we that's when we sort of really cottoned on that the regular glasses are so expensive that people are buying really muted stuff, like really like, like you know, there's either black or brown or blue. You know, like, it goes yeah. with everything. It goes with everything and, like, you don't want to – you don't want to stand out and be like a bit of a goose, you know, you know, work, you know and, and so Dresden suddenly like pressure's off. And like we're literally, I think, on a daily basis committing fashions of crime. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll have like you know, middle-aged men walking down main streets in Australia wearing bright orange glasses <laughs> and, and, you know, then, and they're free. You know, like maybe they shouldn't be, but, you know, they're not caring. And, that, that, and that's what we, we realised, all right, let's, this, is, this is actually just about Let's make it fun and playful yeah. and, and, and not so serious. And mm-hmm. that's really what the glasses shops in Australia at the moment do. They make it so serious. Yeah. Like there's some mystery science black box thing to own it. And, and we were like, we were like, we want uh, – and we're working really hard to be the highest quality because it's about the lens and the vision, not about the, the frame that holds the lens. And that's yeah. where as – a, as a glasses wearer, we wanted just to switch it back – Onto the vision because yeah. that's what I care about. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. And, and, they, and of course, the, the frames, they're great and they're fun and, and they're strong and all that. But let's just get – yeah, so, yeah, back to basics. And so, um, yeah, so I'll never forget that opening the store. Like it was scary first few days of, of like our people going to completely just laugh at us about this, you know, like walking into a glasses shop with just one style of glasses. But four or five si- – four sizes – Millions of colours and interchangeability. You can change the arms. You can ch- everything's interchangeable, and um and people just from word they're just into it. They're into it, and and we've just really built the business around word of mouth. And you know, people see somebody else wearing wearing them, and they ask where they get them from. And yeah, that's, and people can order them online. They can get them online. We're fully like we're fully an online business because you know we've only started a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um. So we've really got that combination of online, but we manufacture. So we, we we're a manufacturer. Uh, we're really proud of that. We make our glasses in Australia, which is not easy. Mm. Um, uh, so they're locally made. Uh, we have, you know, four retail outlets, three in Sydney and one in Melbourne, and then we have an online store. So, um, you know, it, it, we're just – we're really just starting out, but we're having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And do you see, uh, you know, do, do more kids come in? Do more adults come in? Who's your regular customer? Real crazy mix. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the – things that's hard with the business is, you know, um, like with GoGet there's a few basic things like, you know, they've got to have their driver's licence. They've got to, you know, they've got to yeah, – there's a few – so simple. With, with, with Dresden, um, you know, it's a real mass market. And for us, like, kids are a huge one because kids are basically really suffer with traditional glasses because they can't be themselves because mm. their parents are, you know, all the time, oh, don't run, don't you – don't, mm. like, don't break your glasses. So, so – Kids are a huge market. Older people are enormous as well because they tend to feel a bit patronised in the current, you know, because, you know, uh, glasses stores see them coming because, you know, as you get older, you need glasses and, you know, and so suddenly they feel a bit like, oh, they're getting treated the same as everybody else. Mm. Um, uh, there's, there's no end of different, you know, tradies who just go, I like, 
I need five pairs of reading glasses because I'm going to smash three a week. You know, like, <laughs> do you know, like what? It's not. There's no. Yeah. And, and so, the big thing we really never we had an inkling of, but we never really realised was how many people in a rich country like Australia don't have glasses and need glasses. Yeah, and that's what's really um, shocked us. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, uh, while for most people it's about a choice, for a ton of people who are, um, you know, just living, you know, week to week, four or five hundred bucks on a pair of glasses, you know, or even, a, you know, a couple hundred bucks, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a stretch. Yeah. Um, and we really see glasses as just like, it's necessity. Mm. Like, you, you need to have them. So whether it's Australia, we sort of since we've opened, we've been approached by so many people in other countries going, "Hey, this is a problem in India, or this is a problem in Ethiopia, or you know, mm. other parts of the world." So for us, uh, you know, while yeah, there's a there's a way bigger mission to what we're doing, which is to actually be able to sell these glasses at affordable price to people who don't have much money, uh, who are currently really just have to either queue up for a charity program or do without, do you know what I mean? And that's not great. So, so, so essentially, um, so it's a, so we've got a crazy, a crazy mission to continue to manufacture in Australia, get our volumes up, our price, our cost down and actually sell Australian made glasses to develop, to the developing world uh, and have, um, yeah, and have people in Sydney wearing the same pair of glasses as someone in, uh, in, in, yeah, Bombay or Mumbai or in South Africa or wherever, and, and that's that really is um, just simply about again making it making it just an everyday affordable you know uh, on the on the level you know honest product. So yeah, that's what we're working on. I love it that it should be as simple as a knife or a fork as a, a utility object that you just use in your day. Yeah, you, you know, one way I look at it is like you think about toothbrush. Yeah. Like you know, you don't you don't go and get a Prada toothbrush. Oh, you do not. I don't think you can. Like you can get like an oral. You can get one of those really fancy electric ones if you really want to go yeah. berserk. But you know, you just go to the supermarket and and you get another one and you don't think too much about it. And while what we're not doing it, well, while we're doing something that's different to toothbrushes, we we really want to change the consumer relationship with the glasses yeah. so that they don't worry about it. Like it's just I've got a pair. If like if I scratch them or I break them, my prescription changes. I can just get another one, and I can get it in ten twenty minutes. And and I get it, and it's really about getting on with you know that that's how we want people to be able to relate to it. Not oh here I go. Do you know what I mean? This is going to be six hundred bucks. Oh man, you know what? You I'm know, looking I'm at gonna, that. Yeah. Can you do multifocals? <laughs> yeah, we do. We do really? multifocals. How we long? Do... What's your turnaround time on a multifocal? So we're talking about four or five days. Um, cause, and we basically do them for two hundred and forty nine dollars. I'm coming. And we put the rust proofing in. <laughs> Mate, I'm so happy uh, that you came in today and I'm excited to hear about the next person that you bump into because it'll lead to something <laughs> even more amazing. Scary. Mate, thanks so much for coming in and sharing your story. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Unreal, buddy. Thank you. I'm just going to take your photo real quick, okay? All good. That was Bruce Jeffries. Uh, you can find out more about Bruce and the companies that he runs. Uh, just Google up GoGet. Uh, car share and also Dresden Optics is his other company and um, there's actually there's a couple of uh, really cool uh, YouTube interviews of him I found online as well if you want to you know dig a little deeper and, and get a little more of that 
the Brucey vibe. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you got something out of it. I'm grateful that I had a chance to talk to him because uh, I got really jazzed after having him in the house. Thanks heaps for listening. Thank you so much for all the support at Patreon. And uh, I'm really always appreciative of your emails. Send us your email at gmail.com. Have a cracking week, whatever it is that you're doing. Try and get more sleep than I am. I'll see you on Wednesday night. And until we speak next Monday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 